Trauma Code to New York City, Trauma Code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on WBAI. Welcome back to Trauma Code. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, live and in studio for September 25th of 2023. I guess it's actually Yom Kippur, uh, a day of fasting and reflection for those uh, who celebrate, I guess you say. Uh, may you have a meaningful fast. I actually grew up fasting for Yom Kippur through, I think, medical school, but somewhere in residency that uh, was deprioritized, and I haven't done it since then. But um, for all of those who do, may it be meaningful, you know, to be inscribed for blessing in the book of life, as they say. Um, and uh, for, you know, today's show, we have on a return guest, our good friend, uh, the uh, climate uh, journalist, uh, who we've had on previously on a segment we called Climate Anxiety. Um, and we're going to get some updates, what's been going on since then in the world of climate change, of climate change activism, and, uh, you know, what can we think about in moving forward f- uh, towards the future. Um, and, and we'll have a brief musical break before we get her on. And for anyone who was um, joining with us to hear the voice of my lovely co-host, uh, Dr. Cassandra Raphael has other clinical obligations today and will not be in the studio. But if anyone has any interest in November of last year, um, 10 months ago, I guess, uh, we had a segment and she discussed quite a bit about anxiety and how, you know, the, the very real um, crisis of the climate, uh, how, how it can both, you know, negatively impact us, our psyche, and ways of responding to that. And, and having this organized uh, look at the climate situation is one way that I deal with my own climate anxiety. Uh, but real quick, we're going to put on some music by John Prine, uh, Paradise, recommended by our guest Darna Noor, and then we'll come back and start the interview. When I was a child, my family would travel down to western Kentucky, where my parents were born. And there's a backwards old town that's often remembered so many times that my memories are worn. And Daddy, won't you take me back to Muhlenberg County, down by the Green River, where paradise lay? Well, I'm sorry, my son. But you're too late in asking Mr. Peabody's cold train is all the away 
Welcome back to the Trauma Code in downtown Brooklyn. That was, of course, just Paradise by John Prine. Uh, but I have on the line a good friend, probably uh, from Baltimore, Darna Noor. How are you doing today? Can you hear us? Doing great. I am indeed in uh, in Baltimore, where it's pretty pretty gray out. Um, appropriate, I guess, for the beginning of fall and also for uh, for Yom Kippur. Yes, indeed. And you know, I, we had you on last year during some unseasonable warmth in November. Um, uh, and we were, you know, I think a lot of people were taking a very serious uh, and, and sober look at the climate crisis. Um, and uh, Antonio Guterres, uh, the head of the UN, was starting to make very kind of prophetic and very, um, uh, you know, loud statements about uh, the acuity of the crisis. Um, you know, and since then, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we've had the hottest summer ever, maybe Absolutely. maybe the hottest month ever, maybe another um, like the hottest June ever or something like that. So yeah. since, you know, what can we say uh, thinking back to when we were last on in November and, and, and where we're at today? I mean, yes, if you look at the disasters, if you look at warming itself, things have gotten worse. Um, you know, July 2023 was the hottest month on record. It was the hottest summer on record. We just saw the hottest August on record. Um, and we also saw, you know, a number of really devastating disasters. Uh, flooding in Libya um, right now is is completely devastating, and we can talk more about that. Um, you know, this summer, uh, wildfires in Greece were the worst that I think were ever seen in, in Europe, not just in Greece. Um, you know, the Canadian wildfires were record-breaking. Uh, and and this is all to say, like, you know, record heating is a really important metric of climate change. This is also kind of an unusual year because it's an El Nino year. And when we talk about heating, we really need to think about, like, the average over a number of years. Um, but still, I think that this is a real taste of what's to come in the future. It's not all bad, though. I think that there are some kind of moments of hope. Um, you know, while emissions did rise last year over the year before they didn't rise as much as some people were kind of expecting that they would and also you know there's been some pretty cool things happening in movement spaces um and in the labor movement especially that i think can uh can you know kind of point us in the right direction when it comes to uh sort of climate planning so so happy to talk more about all of the good and the bad well and that was quite a uh, uh sort of i used to 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 tell or someone told me that when you give a presentation you tell people what you're going to tell them that you tell them and then you tell them what you told them so um but the other thing i almost forgot to mention is that when you were on the air with us last time i think you were, uh had a position at the boston globe at their climate desk and now correct me if i'm wrong you're uh, with the guardian out of london yeah now so i'm at the, actually with the guardians u.s team which is based out of new york um but i am based in baltimore um where i'm the fossil fuels reporter um wow. so really my focus has been on uh, the climate, the, the the way that the fossil fuel industry has promoted sort of doubt about climate science, uh, attempted to thwart climate policy, and also the sort of movement to hold them accountable for doing that. Wow. And, um, you know, last time I mentioned uh, Antonio, uh, sorry, yeah, Antonio Guterres. I, I accidentally wrote down Luis Gutierrez, who is a, a <laughs> Chicago politician in my notes yep. that I sent you. But um, uh, Antonio Guterres, who's the head of the uh, U.N., um, since we last spoke, has talked about instead of global warming, which is what kind of we grew up talking about, um, global boiling to describe the crisis of, of kind of burning and flooding. Um, and most recently, he said that our current course uh, is a highway to climate hell. Um, so uh, he's he's quite gifted with the turn of phrase, but 
um, you know, we already spoke a little bit about this, but anything else you want to say about, you know, why he feels we're on that trajectory and anything he's saying about um, how to right the ship? I mean, he's right. Um, I, I, I think basically other than like Bernie Sanders, I've not seen a person who has had better speechwriters in my lifetime than Antonio Guterres. Um, and his role that he's taken on as secretary general is pretty unusual, um, you know, using his post to really strongly advocate for a uh, better, more stringent, more serious climate planning. Um, I will say that, like, you know, obviously, as a journalist, I'm in the business of finding the right words to use to describe the emergency that we're in. Um, you know, I work at The Guardian now, which was kind of the first newsroom to prioritize the use of the word climate crisis instead of climate change. Now we've got instead of global warming, global boiling. I think that it is important to, like, use the right words to describe the moment that we're in. And also messaging itself does not really do anything to like take on the problem what we need is policy if messaging can help us get us that can help to get us there that's great um but what we need is like real emissions reduction plans and so you know i think the focus on messaging is really tempting because it's an easier thing to change sometimes but i think that um we got to make sure to not like put all of our focus there i guess right and you made an interesting point in passing about uh you know how measuring where we are in terms of changes in the global temperature you know it's often you know what you said the word metric what metric is used sometimes people talk about the carbon dioxide in the air is an important metric for seeing where we're going to go um and then the end effect of that is the change in temperature since the pre-industrial era which were probably somewhere in the 1.4 to 1.5 cent uh centigrade um increase correct me if you have a better understanding um, but the other metric, right, is what is the effect on people? What does this really mean to people's lives? And I feel like that's kind of what we've seen with these crises, um, the fires, as you mentioned, in Europe and in Canada, the floods, um, both in Greece, where I'm now understanding that huge areas of farmland are, are kind of not going to be farmable mm -hmm. in the near future because of contamination from, well, you know, the salt and mineral contamination from the Mediterranean. And then the, you know, really devastation of the city of Derna in eastern Libya. Um, so, you know, there, there's two parts of that. One is really understanding how the, the impact of the changing climate on our e ecosystem and habitat, but also, you know, food production. And really this understanding that I keep coming to is that our understanding of the present, of the world we live in, is actually antiquated in an understanding of the past. Anything else you want to say about how, you know, what it means that the world is changing? Yeah, totally. I think there's a there's a lot to kind of dig into there. Um, in terms of the amount of temperature rise that we've seen, I think it's still, you know, on average, when we look at like the metric that scientists use, it's still on average under 1.3 degrees of warming since like pre-industrial temperatures. So since industrialization happened, since people started burning um, coal and then oil and now gas uh, at the levels, you know, that, that were never seen before in history, we've seen like 1.2-ish degrees of warming on average. But like, that doesn't mean that individual years have not been hotter. And in fact, this year is really, really hot. You know, we just saw, again, the hottest summer that we've ever seen in record keeping, <laughs> ever since record keeping began. And we might actually cross that 1.5 degree threshold for the first time. So that's different, right, than saying like, that's different than saying that over the course of 10 years, the average rise in temperature has been 1.5 or the average of, of 20 years. But it's still significant to say, you know, oh, even if we come back down next year, it's still significant for it to happen for the first time. Still a sign that things are moving, obviously, in the wrong direction. 
In terms of measuring impacts, I mean, yeah, of course, like all of these figures are not just to talk about statistics. It's not just like some kind of abstract scientific discussion. All of this is about human suffering and like the suffering of ecosystems, right? I mean, you mentioned obviously um, the effects on on crops in, in Greece, um, also in Libya. Um, and, you know, there's all sorts of reports that show that like rising temperatures and carbon dioxide concentrations might increase some crop yields, but overall they're going to be really, really bad for uh, for access to food, you know, and it's not just like heat itself. It's not just uh, the sort of disasters themselves that are really flashy things like, um, you know, things like floods, but also the kind of slower burn of things like heat waves and droughts that might not seem as kind of catastrophic while they're happening, um, but that over time can take a really dramatic toll on food production. The other thing I'll say, I guess, is like there's this sort of idea, I think, especially among like the sort of climate left um, in certain subsects of the climate left um, that we need to just focus on cutting emissions and ending our use of fossil fuels. And obviously, we definitely need to do that. But I think this is an issue where it really shows the importance of adapting to our new world, too. And that doesn't mean like give up just like, you know, change society to adapt. But the reality is like. We're kind of stuck with a certain degree of warming, and there are lots of things that we can do to make sure that people can weather those changes better. So, you know, in some places, like where my family is from in India, um, there's been some efforts to, um, in some communities, switch from uh, producing rice to producing millet, which is like way more kind of crop, uh, a way more kind of drought resistant, uh, way more kind of heat resistant crop, heat resistant crop. Um, and I think that, you know, it's a really uh, kind of positive example of why uh, society needs to also change. Like people are going to need to eat no matter how much hotter the world gets. And no matter how much we reduce emissions, we're going to see a little bit more uh, warming at the very least. And so adaptation is a really, really important part of any climate plan. Right. And, and, you know, I always think about, you know, no matter, I, I put my house on high ground, I have a, a sort of climate change resistant uh, employment. I have a, a good HVAC system that's resistant to changes in fossil fuel prices. And, you know, uh, I have the, you know, all this, I haven't done all of this, but if this is the goal and I get my house, you know, off the grid or whatever, still food, if food production is severely affected, then no mm -hmm. matter, you know, what you are, where you are, um, even if you grow your own food, if, if the world is changing around you, then, you know, it could still be in, uh, impacted by this crisis. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And the, and the other thing, you know, I, maybe this is just, I just started paying attention, but I'm like seeing things that I didn't know were possible. I didn't know were part of the like weather phenomenon. And part of that is because things are changing and becoming more frequent. Um, but I'd never heard of, uh, basically a hurricane in the Mediterranean, what people are sometimes calling a medic, medicane. There's probably a better technical term. Um, but, and I know you're not necessarily the sort of the weather specialist, but do you have an understanding of, of how uncommon that is and how common that might be in the near future? Yeah, I mean, definitely, I think reports show that it will become much more common in the near future. It could become even more common in the long term future if we don't, you know, seriously reduce our emissions and stop burning fossil fuels. Um, the place that we really saw like a lot of effects from that, right, was in it was in Libya, where, um, you know, the there were dams in Derna that burst. Um, they killed thousands of people. It was kind of an unprecedented disaster there. That is obviously because of climate change. There are clear signals that that was like an effect of climate change that is making that extreme weather worse. 
I think it's also a sign that like climate change is a threat multiplier. So, you know, we've we've talked a lot in the past, Simon, about like how, um, you know, the climate crisis is really uh, not something that affects everyone equally. Like there are certain geographies that are more vulnerable, but then there are also populations that are more vulnerable for other reasons. And I think that this happening in Libya is a really good time to examine like why we're seeing the kind of political instability that we are in that nation. Um, you know, there are um, you know, there are people right now who are trying to sort of hold uh, uh, the officials in Libya kind of um, responsible for not uh, kind of doing an inquiry into these two dams that um, that collapsed during this kind of torrential downpour. Um, and there's also I think it's it's worth thinking about, like the way that U.S. intervention helped to destabilize uh, mm -hmm. government uh, government actors and, and government agencies in Libya, too. And so I really think that this is a clear example of how. Um, you know, climate change doesn't just act in a vacuum. It's like climate change plus political instability, um, plus, you know, a lack of resources, plus uh, sort of economic inequality that can lead to these catastrophic results. And and it, it Libya could be a fascinating case study, right? You know, the, the fall of Gaddafi and what he represented in the kind of, you know, non-aligned movement and the sort of Cold War era um, and, you know, how foreign um, involvement in the overthrow um, and, and how that led to complete chaos, really, in the country. And now totally. a split and destabilized country, right? Darna is in the east and is not under the control of the central government in Tripoli, right? So um, I forget the name of the, the kind of military dictator um, there. Um, but definitely what we see is uh, the infrastructure hasn't been kept up and the people are um, completely out. Um, and in addition, um, Libya holds uh, an important uh, crossroads in that migration crisis and the climate crisis mm -hmm. is heightening forced migration um, and, you know, the sort of the crimes against humanity that are having happening in that underworld of, of uh, you know, Libyan um, uh, involvement in the Libyan geography of uh, trafficking, but also even the European role in trying to push, push people back into Libya and Libyan waters rather than having to deal with them on the shore of Europe. So definitely a fascinating and dystopic kind of case study in, in, in the new world order in the era of global boiling. Absolutely. And I think another really clear example of how climate plans need to be about reducing emissions, especially for like folks in the global south who are more affected by temperature rises that are the result of greenhouse gas emissions. But they can't just be about cutting pollution, right? They also need to be about um, taking care of people who are in the places who are already affected. Like, you know, our migration policies are themselves climate policies. Um, you know, our military policies, military spending is itself a climate policy. The United States uh, Department of Defense is the top contributor to climate change in the entire world and the top user of coal, oil and gas of any of any institution in the world. Um, and so, you know, we can't think of these issues in a vacuum. I think that we need to like seriously examine what are uh, what the effects of foreign policy have been um, in compounding the effects of the climate crisis in, in various parts of the world. Definitely. And I think that's a, a good kind of bridge into, uh, you know, what can kind of be done about this, what's been going on. Um, and I know you were in uh, New York recently. I think my parents were also here for um, big activism, uh, protests and marches and direct action. Uh, in Manhattan, related to the fossil fuels and also the financial industry in their um, in their involvement, and actually, you know, last week I had a sports episode, uh, and even it came up because there was protests uh, during the uh, U.S. Open when Coco Golf, the yep. um, the winner, uh, eventual winner of the tournament, was playing. And 
we were commenting how interesting it was the way she commented on on climate activism and i think had a, had an opinion that was sort of representative of a younger generation who's going to have to face the uh the outcome of the, of the climate crisis that going to inherit the the results um so you know what what's been going on what happened in new york i think you were there as well yeah, I was there. Um, and, and what happened in New York was kind of a lot. Um, you know, we saw lots and lots of different tactics and, and several different targets. Um, you know, last weekend, I covered the March to End Fossil Fuels, which was this massive action, the biggest one since um, the COVID-19 pandemic that brought like 75,000 people. And I think that's a pretty conservative estimate to the streets of New York. Um what was really exciting to me was not just like the kind of sheer number of people. Um, protests themselves are good, but I think they're more um, kind of used. It's more useful to understand them as a sort of mark of where the movement is going versus like an end in themselves. But what was really kind of notable to me about that protest is that it specifically called out the cause of the climate crisis. It specifically called out fossil fuels and targeted Biden in this really specific way. Like it was, it was very focused on getting Biden to um, help seriously phase out fossil fuels. Um, and then, as you sort of mentioned, uh, before that action and then also after, there were a number of um, instances of civil disobedience targeting financial institutions, which might seem like a kind of weird target. We often talk about like, you know, big oil. We, we talk about Shell and Exxon and, and ConocoPhillips and things like that. Um, but the argument that these sort of activists have been making, and I think that it's obviously correct, is that those companies would not survive without financial institutions that back them and give them the funding to expand fossil fuels. So I covered this, um, this civil disobedience at the Federal Reserve, um, where activists were calling on the U.S. government to not keep investing in fossil fuels. Lots of people got arrested. It was pouring rain. It was like pretty miserable and also pretty incredible to see. Um and there were also actions at, you know, things like Bank of America and other financial institutions. There was even an action um, at MoMA, at the, uh, the Museum of Modern Art, for uh, its links to KKR, which is another major investor in fossil fuels. So a pretty wide ranging group of targets um, and different tactics that we're used to. Uh, and, you know, one of the other pieces of news that came up is that uh, I believe NYU is divesting, uh, divesting um in yeah. some capacity, all of its investments in the fossil fuel industry. So, you know, that's one example of how this kind of, of activism can have real effects. But anything else that we can say uh, might be or looks like will be the effect of what we saw uh, happening in the streets of Manhattan? I mean, I think it's too soon to tell. We definitely see... On the one hand, like, you know, we can definitely point to things that have been happening, for instance, in the Biden administration that I don't think would happen without uh, the sort of push from the movement. Um, you know, last week, for instance, he rolled out this Civilian Climate Corps-ish, um, which is this, you know, essentially like groups like the Sunrise Movement um, and the Movement for a Green New Deal had been pushing for a long time for Biden to have something like the sort of FDR uh, Conservation Corps but focused specifically on climate, focused on, you know, things like climate adaptation um, and mitigation through the planting of trees or like ecosystem re um, rewilding and things like this. Um, what we got from the Biden administration last week was, I think, still a win for the movement. But I've got some questions about 
whether or not it's actually going to, you know, lead to uh, public jobs in the way that activists hope that it would, and, and frankly, that I hope that it would. Um, so we'll see what happens there. Um, so in some cases, yeah, there have definitely been like specific things that we've seen from the Biden administration and from local administrations and institutions like NYU, for instance, that have been the result of um, that kind of push from activists. What we've not seen, I think, is like a really solid plan to phase out fossil fuels or even begin to sort of wind them down. Um, and I think that that's sort of a lot of what folks in New York were saying last week is like we are glad in some cases to see some of these sort of tiny incremental wins. Um, but a lot of them, you know, focus more on sort of bringing um, new programs in to to help like you know, expand renewable energy or to help with, um, you know, adaptation plans, things like this, and not really addressing the root cause of warming in the first place, which is getting coal and oil and gas offline. Right. And at the time where it probably need to be quickly um, ending the, the use of fossil fuels, we're seeing increased pr um, production, exploration, and even subsidies of fossil fuel um, exploration and, and consumption. Absolutely. And uh, and those subsidies are rising year over year. They actually reached like a, a sort of fever pitch. They reached their highest level on record last year. So uh, we're really moving in the wrong direction there. And, and you know, the one question I have, there's some um, influential people uh, in at least the online space related to climate change that have been advocating for um, Biden to declare some kind of climate emergency. I haven't quite understood what that would, you know, mean in in real terms. Is that something that's a serious demand, and what would be the implications of that? I hate to like plug my own work, but I've written a bunch of stuff that Please. that sort of explains what the implications of this are. Um, if readers or if listeners are interested, they can go check that stuff out. Um, the the declaration of a climate emergency is sort of an interesting demand to me because it's really. It, it's a demand because activists see it as a way for Biden to unlock a bunch of other powers. Um, declaring an official federal climate emergency would allow Biden to sort of bypass Congress to do things like um, stop the exports of crude oil, um, to begin to halt the expansion of the gas industry. Um, and it, it essentially is a way to um, kind of increase his federal authority, his, his executive authority, rather, in the federal government instead of having to work through Congress for everything. There are some people who are sort of like, this is a really bad idea because if he does this for this reason, then other presidents can do it um, for other reasons. Like they, people think, some people think it's like an overreach. Um, I think that's sort of neither here nor there. The important thing for me is like, how how is he going to use and and sort of expand his executive authority um, to take on this unprecedented emergency? Right, right. And um, part of the caveat of expanding um, uh, executive authority and and exercising legislative and executive authority, right, is the judicial authority. Um, and yeah, uh, totally. this, uh, some of the news today. I was listening to Democracy Now is about the blossoming of a kind of corruption crisis. Of Clarence Thomas, uh, you know, we know that uh, billionaire, um, you know, GOP funder Harlan Crow has sort of been his sponsor in paying for his lifestyle in various ways. Um, but we also have found out recently that um, he, part of that, was a connection to uh, the Koch brothers and uh, political fundraising and political events uh, within the Koch network. And, you know, when I was doing a little bit of preparation for today's show, I Googled you or something, and you have an IMDb page. Um, <laughs> and high up on that IMDb uh, DB page is a movie called um, 
in what is it called inside the Koch brothers war on climate science um, yeah so so you've written about this this is relevant how is the, these revelations about um the Koch brothers and their uh you know Harlan Crow corruption of Clarence Thomas have to do with uh, sabotaging um you know serious response to the climate emergency I mean I don't, but I, I feel like maybe this is a weird thing for a journalist to say, but I think it just really shows like the complete inadequacy and the, the sort of sham that the Supreme Court is, right? Like we hear so often that this high court is, um, is supposed to like objectively weigh in on political issues as though they're not also deeply involved in them. And I think it's kind of no, I'm glad to see the reporting. And I, I hate when people are like, Oh, surprise, surprise, but it's no surprise, really. And like, what's the point of writing this? I, I think that it's really, really important to examine the specific links that Clarence Thomas has to the Cokes. Um, I think it's really illuminating. Um, and it's also sort of, it comes in, I guess I'll say it comes in like a, a strong history of corruption within the Supreme Court. Um, earlier this year, The Intercept reported that um, Samuel Alito's wife, had actually leased land to an oil and uh, an oil and gas firm um, while he Alito was fighting the EPA in the Supreme Court. So it's not the first time that we've seen this sort of corruption and these sort of conflicts of interest um, in the Supreme Court. Uh, and I think that that really, you know, kind of it should force us to examine the kinds of people who were electing to these high courts in the not electing, obviously appointing, appointing to these right. high courts in the first place. Um, and and also should kind of show us how deep. The, the sort of roots of the fossil fuel industry are in every part of the American judiciary and, and government. Right. You know, sort of interesting. Uh, there was a, a generation of kind of appeals to the moral authority of the Supreme Court, uh, which were somewhat effective in, in changing uh, not just the de jure, but the de facto reality in, in many parts of the United States. And I think um, because of that, there's a lot of faith in the institution. What now we're seeing is really up to the nine people and the process to um, appoint them, which has been both uh, in both cases severely corrupted and, and at that point causes a severe, I think, danger and harm to, to, to the whole world. Totally. Which I think, you know, I, I report in my new role at The Guardian a lot on um, the, the sort of lawsuits focused on taking on the fossil fuel industry. I write this series called Big Oil Uncovered um, and I've done a lot of reporting on like climate focused lawsuits there. Um, I think that there is a lot that sort of litigation can do. I think it's been a really important uh, part of movements in the past. However, I think it's really important to keep in mind that like if somebody like Clarence Thomas is uh, you know, on the highest court in the U.S. that should tell us something about the limits that are baked into the U.S. judicial system overall. Definitely. Um, and uh, anything else that you want to say? Uh, oh, actually, the one point I wanted to add to that before we moved on is that I understand that there's a case sort of nicknamed Chevron, um, which is going to be revisited in the U.S. Supreme Court related to the authority of um, – you know, regulations out of, you know, executive regulatory agencies, the court has been, I understand it, relatively deferential to them unless there's a specific, discrete uh, constitutional um, violation. And it sounds that uh, Clarence Thomas, um, since he's had all of this influence, has changed his opinion to be in favor of, of that kind of regulatory structure to now being opposed to it. Any comment that you have or any kind of insight you have on, on how what we're hearing about may impact what's coming before the court in the next year or two or three? 
Yeah, I mean, that case is really, really scary um, for climate reasons and for like the future of environmental regulation, but also generally for like the federal power of regulatory agencies. Um, and I think that this comes as part of a longstanding push, obviously, in the American right to dismantle the regulatory system. Um, I wrote a couple months ago, I guess it was, about this project called Project 2025, um, where basically like dozens of right wing groups from, you know, from Koch funded think tanks, from like Koch brothers funded think tanks to um, the American conservative came together to make this sort of plan for whoever the next Republican president is. It was completely focused on deregulation. It was focused on like dismantling the EPA, on um, defunding lots of parts of the uh, Department of Environment, um, but also, you know, things like, um, you know, taking down the Department of Education, like dissolving the Department of Education, um, generally really focused on deregulation. And it was convened by the Heritage Foundation, which is kind of a leading right wing think tank that had previously written a really similar uh, plan for deregulation um, that was picked up in 1980 when Ronald Reagan was elected. So it's like there's there's a real precedent for this kind of um, anti-regulatory, anti-state framework to take a real hold. Um, and so, you know, I think that I, I guess I'd just say that like this, the Supreme Court case is one um, prong in a huge sort of uh, right wing plan to take on the regulatory state. And I think that that's I mean, it's a really scary sign. But I also think that's a clear sign of like what we need to be um, watching out for and what we need to be protecting. Yeah, I, I can't imagine being a lawyer um, arguing, you know, some of these common sense uh, cases in front of the Supreme Court when, you know, if it please the court, uh, your honor is is acting in bad faith. You know, what kind of legal filing can you, you know, brief can you file? So, um, well, anything else? You know, I know you have a, a deadline, any, uh, rather a, a hard stop coming up. Anything else you want to say about the topic or updates on climate crisis or response to our climate anxiety since we last spoke in November? Yeah, I mean, you know, the last time I came on the show, I think that I was I was really kind of concerned about the rise of climate anxiety, but also kind of mentioned that I think a good way to take it on is with collective action and with kind of teaming up with other people to um, work on something where you can make a difference, not only in your own life, but also for others like meditation and therapy and things like this can be really helpful, I think. But also, like, self-care is one thing collective care i think it's like a much more important thing um and i think that we've seen some pretty cool developments in that space and ones that have real material effects um this might not be what people think of when they think of as like the climate movement but the uaw right now launching a strike um that specifically calls for better protections in the switch to electric vehicles is i think a really really important part of the climate fight like that is the future i think of of any sort of um, movement in the United States that's going to take care of workers while we transition. Like, if this transition is really going to happen, we're going to need to take care of workers or nobody's going to want to be a part of it. And frankly, it'll be extremely unethical and just reproduce the same problems. Um, and so I think that, you know, if you're if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling sort of traumatized by everything that you're seeing around you, like I affirm that. And also, like, maybe go ahead to maybe go ahead to a picket line, maybe like look at the at the sort of important fights that are happening. Um, I think that it's really, really important that we don't sort of like blackpill ourselves, that we don't, uh, mm. you know, that we don't let our despair get in the way of being able to see the future. Um, and that's a really important way, I think, to sort of remind ourselves that, you know, that we're fighting for something. Um, we might not get everything right. We've, in fact, like screwed up a lot already. But every single 
the bit of emissions matters, every tenth of a degree of warming matters, and the more that we can do to sort of prevent uh, future warming, future emissions, frankly, the fewer people could die and suffer. Um, and so I think it's really important to sort of keep that in mind and not let ourselves get bogged down in despair. Definitely. And we're in a very fascinating moment of uh, worker organization in all fronts, you know, in, in the last year, you know, even, in re you know, uh, medical residents organizing for a union and for a, a contract in New York. We're talking about the un United Auto Workers, but also the writers and the actors right now. There's all this news that we don't even have time for. But, you know, it was kind of interesting. Uh, I, I'm not sure you went to school. I think you grew up in Montgomery County. I think you might have gone to Springbrook High School. Um, no, I grew up in Towson. Oh, you um, grew up in Baltimore County. I didn't realize yeah. that. Fascinating. You were friends with Ryan Harvey then. Yeah, yeah it was. Um, well, one of my friends uh, from uh, from Montgomery County and from a group, uh, I think he was involved in Students for Peace and Justice, which was a high school activist group when I was in college at the University of Maryland. Down the street uh, is uh, Devin McKnight, who's a, a musician. And I stumbled across him on a tiny desk concert as part of Speedy Ortiz. Um, and their nice. new their new album is called Rabbit Rabbit. And uh, when we get you off the air, the next thing we're going to do is play a song that they played that uh, he was, you know, the rhythm guitarist on called Scabs. Uh, and uh, the um, the singer, uh, uh, what's her name? Dupuis. Sadie Dupuis. Sadie, yeah, yeah. I, have, I actually, I'm, I have her book of poetry, like li literally right next to me on the shelf where I'm sitting. So she, she dedicated that song to striking workers. So just like mm -hmm. a moment of uh, synchronicity or whatever you want to call it uh, and throwback to, to that era. Um, but uh, while we have you on the air, I know you have to go in a minute, but any cultural recommendation that you want to share with our audience um, that they might not otherwise come across? Yeah, totally. So in this moment that we're thinking a lot about the meaning of protest, um, I have recently started reading uh, the forthcoming book from Vincent Bevins called If We Burn, which examines protest movements, not in the U.S., um, but in parts of, sort of Latin America and the Middle East. Um, and it, it specifically sort of looks at how protest move what what we are able to, to learn from protest movements that in some ways failed and in some ways should just be lessons for the future. Um, I'm not done yet, but it's amazing so far and I would highly recommend it. Excellent. Well, uh, for you know anyone who has uh, just caught the last half of that, that was uh, Darna Noor on Trauma Code uh, talking about climate anxiety. Darna, thanks for making the time and uh, it's always a pleasure. I'm sure you'll be back before we know it. Thank you so much. Always great to be on. Thanks so much. So we're going to have a little musical break, and then we'll hop back on. Um, we're going to play a, a brand new one now from an album coming up called Rabbit Rabbit. Um, this is a song called Scabs, uh, written in solidarity with striking workers.
Okay. Welcome back to the Trauma Code. I was hoping to let that play a little bit because they uh, introduced Devin McKnight, good friend of the show, uh, as the guitarist on there. Um, and uh, just wanted to shine a little bit on a friend from way back, a little accomplishment. Um, and uh, if you just caught the end of that, that was a climate a journalist for The Guardian, Darna Noor, helping us through our climate anxiety. She had a uh, sort of a 235 hard stop. So uh, we'll have to carry on for the rest of the show without her. Um, and we had talked a little bit about, you know, the, the new news of corruption with Clarence Thomas, which, of course, is an evergreen story. Um, but the, the crew over there, ProPublica, keeps turning out kind of more uh, more incriminating evidence of his behavior. I don't know if it's quite met the, the bar of criminality. And we know that the Supreme Court doesn't really have any kind of effective ethical um, oversight in any meaningful way. So whatever uh, the 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 crew, as the, the majority of the court says, then that's what it'll be. And for now, he can uh, let it ride and, and keep uh, ruling on these cases that have devastating outcomes and that have conflicts of interest uh, for him. And, of course, the other piece of news um, in the uh, political sphere was uh, the Menendez uh, uh, corruption case out of New Jersey. Again, not a new story, someone that's been known uh, to take um, money as a senator, uh, United States senator, um, in really kind of uh, suspicious ways. He'd, I think, been charged, indicted, um, but acquitted before um, for kind of criminal acts related to corruption. But, you know, the Democratic leadership let him back in to the powerful Foreign Relations Committee, and now it appears that he was taking um, bribes. Uh, you know, fascinating, almost unbelievable story, but including from uh, the government of Egypt uh, and and uh, bribes from uh, an Egyptian-American who had the uh, exclusive uh, rights to declare halal meat to be exported to um, Egypt. Um, really just a fascinating and to me an echo of the New York corruption of another era when Meyer, Lans Meyer Lansky and a whole criminal enterprise managed to corner the market on kosher chicken in the U.S. And that was one of his primary rackets as he grew up, or, you know, within that uh, mafia and later Murder, Inc. Um, organization. Um, but, you know, i got to get these guys out, um, and I think it might be easier to get Menendez out um, rather than uh, Thomas. But just goes to show if you let them stick around long enough, they're – and, you know, they're bad actors. They're just going to harm you in the end. Um, so uh, we're getting towards the end of our show. The only other thing I wanted to from last week when we had talked about the sports update, people who were paying attention might have noticed that Colorado had kind of a blowout loss against Oregon. Um, but I think uh, everything we said about Deion Sanders still goes. Um, so definitely going to be a story we're going to be following. Their next game against USC also has the risk of having a similar outcome. And one of the things that we didn't talk about very trauma-related is one of their star players, I think Travis Hunter was his name, who uh, went both offense and defense, I think, as a receiver and a cornerback, had kind of a late hit that fractured his liver um, and really put him at risk. A fractured liver can, you know, you can bleed to death from that. And a second hit after the first can um, can be devastating. So he's going to be out for at least a month to six weeks, anybody following that. So they're going to be a little bit handicapped, so to speak. Um, but uh, my favorite team, I'm sorry, New York, the Orioles are still killing it, still above the division, still a couple of games ahead of the Diamondbacks, and they've been playing relentless. I think today is their first day off in, like, weeks and weeks, um, and the arms are tired on that team. Felix Bautista is still injured. Um, but they have a chance to... to 
to win the division and uh, win the American League, and, and I'll be excited to see them in the playoffs, God willing. Um, and we're getting towards the end of our show. Obviously, you know, we, uh, I volunteer my time to bring the trauma code to you, and I, I love doing it. Um, but we can't uh, do that if we can't pay the bills. So definitely take the opportunity, the pledge line to support WBAI is 212-209-2950. Again, 212-209-2950. You can also give online at give2wbai.org. That's the number two. Uh, or just click the donate button on WBAI.org uh, to support the sh- uh, the show and, and the station and the whole legacy of WBAI that we're really fortunate and honored to, to carry forward. Uh, and if you like the trauma code, you can find this episode and previous episodes in the WBAI radio archives, uh, as well as anywhere you get your podcasts under the name trauma code. You can reach out to us uh, by email at trauma code WBAI at gmail.com. Uh, or on social media, wherever you do that, at Trauma Code WBAI uh, on uh, multiple platforms. And if you're missing me on one, send me an email, sh- shoot it to me, let me know which uh, which platform you prefer, and I'll look into it, trying to get away from the Elon Musk-dominated and uh, some of these other ones as well. Um, uh, but before the end of the show, you know, I, I often – I'm working tonight, so Brooklyn, on your best behavior – um, if I catch some free time at midnight, Reggie, anything that you want to tell us about? Are you having your show tonight from the soundboard? Anything you want to tell us what to expect? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, the tonight's program is going to be uh, focusing on Sinead O'Connor. Fascinating. We we had our Sinead O'Connor uh, a little mini uh, tribute, um, and definitely an important historical figure. So I'll, I'll if I catch some free time, Brooklyn, I'll be listening to that around midnight. Um, and as we get towards the end of the show, the last thing that I will play as we close out the show, uh, I mentioned that good friend of the show, Devin McKnight, uh, is part of uh, Speedy Ortiz, at least at some point in the last 10 years, and they invited him on to their Tiny Desk concert uh, that we just played uh, a clip from, their new album, Rabbit, Rabbit. That song was called Scabs, dedicated to striking workers. Uh, and Devin has uh, his own project, Manica, I think you pronounce it, M-A-N-E-K-A, uh, and he's constantly playing all over the place. So uh, if you're into that kind of music, we're going to close out on one of his tracks from his new album uh, called uh, uh, Zipline uh, from his uh, from his new album. I think it's called Dark Matter. I don't have it in front of me. Anyway, Devin, if you're listening, you can text it to me, the name of your new album. Um, but uh, definitely, uh, you know, Thanks for joining us, New York. Um, always a pleasure. Uh, and we're going to close out with that, that music from Manica. Yeah.